Good morning and welcome everybody. I'm so excited to be with you guys this morning. Um, if you would like to join us and stand and worship, we're going to get ready for you guys. Let's read this confession together from Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Thank you. 
worship Jesus more of you Oh, lift it high forever You raised me from the night Together in your perfect love Good morning, everyone. Please continue standing for the word of the Lord. This reading today is from John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, out of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Nick, for reading the scripture, and thank you, team, for leading us in worship. One of the things that we try to do here as a worship ministry is that we, uh, we want to actually walk us through the gospel as we're singing. And, and today, this morning, was a great example of the team doing that. I really appreciate you all leading us. Uh, in that way, the worship, uh, the music and the teaching are two sides of the same worship coin, that we're doing the same thing with both, where we point people to the good news of Jesus Christ, but we're doing it in different ways in both of those. And so really appreciate you leading us in worship team. Uh, my name is Tyler Thompson. I'm the pastor of worship and communities here at Redemption Arcadia, and uh, we're uh, going through the the Gospel of John. Today we're in John chapter 8, the tail end of John John chapter 8. Pastor Frank is away. He and and Jackie are participating in a a camp, uh, a marriage marriage retreat, uh, and, and we're um, praying for them as they're uh, participating and, and leading in that way. Uh, we also have two other pastors here in addition to Pastor Frank and myself. We have Trey Fraley, who is our next-gen pastor, and we have uh, Tyler James, who is our family pastor and our executive pastor. And so we're thankful for a, a good pastoral team here that works together. I'm, I'm encouraged to be a part of that team. So we're in the middle of John chapter 8, and our text today, uh, you can turn there in your Bibles if you would, to John chapter 8, but our text today actually drops us right in the middle of a scene that is already taking place. So it's important for us to know that uh, this isn't sort of a scene that that is developing from scratch, but that it's already sort of going and unfolding in a way that is increasingly heated. There's a war of words that's going on between the Pharisees and Jesus, and Jesus is winning, as we might expect, uh, but the, I wanted to catch us up a little bit of, of what's happening here, because it's important for us to understand that as we go into our text today. So meanwhile, back at Denny's, if you were, if you were in church last week, Pastor Frank shared this analogy that, that Denny's, uh, nobody goes to Denny's on purpose, you just sort of end up there and you eat because you're there. Uh, he said that, that becoming a Pharisee is sort of like that, that nobody becomes a Pharisee on, on purpose, but you sort of fall into, stumble into a, a lifestyle of being a Pharisee, and it sort of increases gradually as you go. And I think that's a really good analogy, um, that we actually don't oftentimes know that we are being, our heart is being hardened uh, by sin. We oftentimes don't realize that that's happening as it's taken place until we get to a place where all of a sudden we're a Pharisee, and, and uh, we're, we're at Denny's every 
every day of the week, and, and we know the servers' names, and they know our names, and we have the menu memorized. It's sort of what happens with sin. We just sort of gradually become uh, enslaved uh, to, to something other than our, our master, Jesus Christ. And one of the things that's happening here is that Jesus is interacting in the with the Pharisees in a way where he is entirely in control at every moment. I, I'm so impressed by Jesus, uh, which makes sense, right? He's God. I'm so impressed what, with Jesus' ability to, be, to maintain uh, composure and control in all of these difficult situations that he walks in. While people are throwing things at him left and right, Jesus is able to stay on mission and on point in a way that is both truthful and loving, and I just am amazed by our Savior in that way. So let me, let me catch us up just real quickly with uh, some of the words that have been said already. Uh, the Pharisee, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, and the Pharisees are saying, you are a liar. Uh, Jesus is saying, my testimony is true. The Pharisees say, oh yeah, where is your father? Jesus is saying, you don't know me. You don't know my father. You are from below. I am from above. You are from this world. I am not of this world. Unless you believe, you'll die in your sins. The Pharisees are saying, who do you think you are? Jesus is saying, when you kill me, you'll know who I am. I speak on the Father's authority. I always please him. The Pharisees say, we are children of Abraham. Jesus says, you are a slave to sin. My words find no place in you. You seek to kill me. You do your father's will. The Pharisees say, Abraham is our father. Jesus says, if you were children of Abraham, you would believe like he does. But really, you want to kill me. You are doing your father's works. The Pharisees say, at least we know who our father is. God is our father. Jesus says, if so, you would love me. He sent me. You don't have the power to believe. Your father is the devil. You don't hear the word of God. You are not of God. The Pharisees say, uh, <laughs> you are a Samaritan and have a demon. And that's where we pick up our text today. A few things that I just want to point out about this interaction that we've seen already with the Pharisees and Jesus. Uh, the first is this, is that Jesus is the only one who goes to Denny's on purpose. Because he can enter into Denny's without being addicted to the grease. Yeah? Frank and I are worried that Denny's is going to sue us after this. <laughs> Jesus is able to come into our situation and not be made dirty by the situation. In fact, this is over and over in the, in the gospel accounts where Jesus can come and he can touch those who are unclean. And rather than him becoming unclean also, the unclean become clean. And he's the only one who is able to do that. All the rest of us fall into sin when we're around sin. All, of, all the rest of us have a sin nature that is uh, be, being um, perpetuated in our lives until we meet Christ. And then Christ begins to sanctify and restore and redeem. But Jesus is the only one who's able to go there without actually being falling, falling into sin. Hebrews 4.15 says it this way, that he is tempted in every way, yet without sin. That Jesus is able to make the unclean clean when he comes into contact with it. The second point I just want you to see here is that the Pharisees are at a, at a point where they are willing to try anything to win. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where there's sort of the one-upsmanship, where the things are getting incre increasingly heated as you go. The Pharisees are at a point where they're actually willing to try anything. All the rules of normal engagement are out. I'm just looking to see how I can get that victory. I've experienced that in my life. I watched my kids actually do that this weekend. I've done that recently in my own relationships that I have. It's just sort of our nature that we get to a point where we want to win at, no, at, at, at any cost. Anybody else ever been there? Two of you are honest. It's awesome. <laughs> appreciate, appreciate you guys. So that's the second thing. The, the Pharisees are at this point where they're willing to do anything to, to win. And Jesus, again, is unfazed by this. He's, he's not throwing out uh, the rules of truth and love. 
he's actually continuing to engage in truth and love in this conversation. The third thing is this. The Pharisees are blinded by several things in, in this world, and so as a result, they're not able to see who Jesus is. And, and really, we are blinded by these same things. They're blinded, and this is one of the things that came out of our preaching collective that we do on Wednesdays. They're blinded by position, blinded by power, blinded by perceived pedigree, blinded by possessions, and blinded by pleasure. And this really uh, hit to the core of, of me as I was thinking about this passage, is that oftentimes we are blinded by these same things. We want to hold on to our power, what little power we may have. We want to hold on to our position. We want to hold on to sort of our pedigree or our background or, or the reputation that we have. We want to hold on to our possessions, the things that we can gain in this world. And we want to hold on to pleasure, things that we can enjoy and experience. And so the Pharisees are blinded by these, these things, just like we can be blinded by these things. But Jesus is going to cut, again, cut to the core of our, of our hearts, just like he does with the Pharisees here, and help us to understand that he is greater than all of these things. So that's where we pick up in verse eight, uh, 48 of chapter 8. The tail end of this war of words. We have intrigue, we have insults, we have Jesus claiming to be God. And we have this encouragement to believe as Abraham did. That Jesus uses Abraham as a way of saying, Abraham believed, we should believe as Abraham did. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? What's interesting about this is that They've gone beyond now any kind of logic or reason. There's no reason actually for them to uh, attack Jesus in this way, but they're losing this interaction with Jesus. And so they result to, uh, they, they result to ad hominem attacks, name-calling, cut-downs, things that are digs at, at, who, at who Jesus might be. So they're saying, aren't you a Samaritan? There's an there's a ethnic insult there. They're saying, Aren't you, don't you have a demon? There's a spiritual insult there. In other words, if we can't win this battle with reason and logic uh, or with even our own traditions of Scripture, we're going we're gonna to try to win this battle by calling you names. And I'm, I'm amazed at how many times that we can result to these kinds of things as well. You don't have to go very long on any of the social media platforms to notice that people are name-calling right and left. There's no real, most of the time, there's no real logic or reason being employed. It's, it's ad hominem attacks with one another. We result to these things because we know that in our process, because we're living out of fear and we're living out of control, we actually don't have any real ground to stand on. And so that's why we result to these things. And the Pharisees have done this as well by saying, aren't you a Samaritan? Don't you have a demon? Jesus answered in verse 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't, doesn't actually respond to the Samaritan accusation. It, it's almost as though he's, he's not going to dignify that with a, with a response. Uh, he, he doesn't even touch it here at all. And, and there's another thing that's going on here as well, where Jesus has, has already in many ways identified with the Samaritan people, the way that he did with the Samaritan woman, for example. There's a sense where Jesus has already identified with the broken and the lost in a way that he's already made his position in that clear. And so he doesn't answer that at all. Instead, he answers and says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. There's other places, right, where, where Jesus is pointing out that a divided kingdom cannot stand against each other. So in other words, I'm not acting from a demon, because why would a demon drive out a demon? I'm acting from the authority of the Father. Jesus wants to make clear this distinction between who, who his Father is and who the Father of the Pharisees is. That's why he's already said, your Father's the devil. You're acting out of the authority of the devil rather than the authority of God. And so Jesus repeats that here in saying that everything that he's doing honors the Father. 
And then he says, you dishonor me. And if you dishonor me, by extension, you're dishonoring the Father. So Jesus is already starting to claim his connection between him and the Father here, right? Earlier in the passage, he's, he's already said, I am, a couple of times. He said, I am the light of the world. He says, he says I am the one who's bear, who bears witness about myself. But we're going to get to a point here now where he's going to actually not beat around the bush anymore. And instead, he's going to claim that he is I am. But here in 49, we see that he's already headed that direction. If you, honor the, if you dishonor the Father, then you dishonor me, because I and the Father are one, is what he'll say later on in John. Verse 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. A few things that are here that are just fascinating. One is that Jesus is never seeking his own glory. I wish that I could say that about myself. But too often times, I'm looking for my glory. Jesus is able to say, in all honesty and truth, that he is not seeking his own glory. And if we're going to be Christ followers, if we're going to be Christ-like, that's a posture that actually our hearts must adopt. That we're not looking to seek our own glory. But then Jesus goes further and says, there is one who seeks it, the Father. The Father is seeking the glory of Jesus. You've heard Pastor Frank say before that the, the, the members of the Trinity, the three, three in one, Father, Son, Spirit, are consistently elevating and lifting up the other. That's happening here as well, where Jesus is saying, the Father is the one who seeks my glory. We know that from other places in Scripture as well. Later on, Jesus will pray, Father, glorify your Son. In Philippians 2.9, we see that Jesus, therefore, after Jesus has gone to the cross, and has been lifted up that Jesus is given the name by the Father. The Father gives Jesus the name that is above every name, that every, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Jesus is right in saying that his Father seeks to give him glory. And then he says, and he is the judge. There's that little reminder that not only is he lifting up his Son, but there is the truth that God himself is the judge and that if, if the Father is going to lift Jesus up, then by his same authority, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I was reading this scripture with my daughters the other day over breakfast, and, and Charlotte said, why does he say truly, truly? Why does he say it two times? And there was a real sense there where where. It was fascinating in, in the mind of a child, in the mind of a 10-year-old, that Jesus would repeat himself that way. Why does he say truly, truly? And we know from the scriptures that Jesus is saying that teachers, rabbis would say that when they really meant something. Whenever something's repeated in scripture, like there are certain texts that are repeated two, three, four places, we ought, we ought to listen. Jesus is saying, listen, I, I really am telling you the truth here. That this is something that you ought to listen to and, 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 and adapt as truth. In fact, it goes beyond hearing. Like the scripture will say, don't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. With the truly, truly statements, there's a sense where Jesus is saying, don't just let this go in one ear and out the other. But let this come in the ear and, and, and be ingrained in you. That's why, that's why Jesus will say, my words aren't in you earlier in the discussion. And so he's saying, truly, truly, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I also recall earlier in John when Peter had said to Jesus, uh, there was some difficulty that was coming and many folks began to leave following Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, are you still, are you still here, basically? And Peter says, where will we go? You, your words have the power of eternal life. There's a real sense where only Jesus' words are to be kept in a way that draws obedience from us. That his words we ought to be meditating on, internalizing, obeying, trusting, living out above all other words. And Jesus is saying if you're not listening to these words, then you're cut off from the vine, to use another, another metaphor that he uses. 
That if you're not remaining in him, then you have no attachment to life. And that's a stern warning for us, isn't it? That unless we are abiding in Christ and in his words, that we are cut off from the very source of life. Do you see also he's coming to a place where he's going to be saying, I am, I exist. He's already hinting at that here with I and the Father are connected. I and the Father are one is what he's going to say. And now he's saying, I am the very source of life. That if you're not connected with me, you'll be cut off from that. Verse 51, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Their objection was that the prophets and Abraham have died. That they followed God's word, and yet they died. So how can you say that if we follow God's word, that you're not going to taste death? And additionally, are you saying that you are God? They know where he's going. But they're throwing an objection and saying, we know that our forefathers passed away. So we know what you're claiming. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? He said, they say in verse 53, and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be again? Is that who do you think you are? Of course, the answer to that question is yes. Are you greater than Abraham? Yes. We can have a tendency to lift up some of the great figures in the scripture to a place where God never intended them to be. Yes, we want to look to Abraham. Yes, we want to look to the prophets. But we look to Abraham and the prophets as they point us to Jesus. And we do that today as well. We have figures in in sort of Christendom. Christendom. We have figures that we elevate and, and, and we look to them and we follow. Paul, Paul confronted this early on in, in the early church. Well, you say you follow Paul. You say you follow Apollos. And he cuts to the core saying, yeah, we plant, we water, but it's God who makes things grow. I think that's happening here as well, where Jesus is saying, you were right to follow to look to Abraham, and you were right to look to the prophets, but only as far as they pointed you to me. And I think that there's times, too, where we have to understand that in our, in our Christian culture, that we have these leaders in the faith that, whose job is to point us to Jesus, but they're not Jesus. We're not Jesus. The job of the leaders of the church is to point people to Jesus in a way that brings glory to God. And so they're saying, are you greater than our father Abraham? And Jesus is saying, yes. I love how Jesus is, is, just, is just willing to engage in these things. Sometimes we can think of Jesus as, as, as only meek and mild. And it is true that he, are, he is meek and mild. And it is true that he was led to the cross as a, as, as a lamb who was led silently to the slaughter. He willingly lays his life down. But there are these other moments where 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 Jesus looks much less passive. And we oftentimes point to the times that he clears out the temple as an example of this, or as examples of this, because he did it two times. There are times that we actually want to point to that as something that, that... that is, a, is sort of the flip side of Jesus. But there are these war of words as well where Jesus is doing this also. One of the passages that, that Pastor Frank actually wanted to, to use last week, uh, but he didn't get to, is a place where, where Jesus is actually um, maybe even more vicious in his words. In his passage in Matthew And it says this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming into where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down 
and thrown into the fire. Jesus is greater than Abraham, and Abraham points us to Jesus. I love that Jesus is ready to mix it up. And there are times that we need to understand that Jesus, Jesus does this, and it's not inappropriate for him to do so. That by his words, he is communicating both truth and love to those who are listening. And it will be something that divides. Jesus himself acknowledges that his words will be something that divide the people. And we see that throughout these interactions. And it'll actually start to pick up in intensity now. That as he says more and more things, the divide between those who are saying, we will obey your word, and those who are saying, he is of the devil, he is, has a demon, the divide will become increasingly more and more clear from this point out in the Gospel of John. And friends, I am, I am for unity. I am for togetherness. But there are times that we have to understand that the scripture divides people into categories in a way that we are not able to put together. That there is a natural divide between the righteous and the wicked. There's a natural divide between those who are of the Father and those who are of the devil. And it is only Jesus who's able to put those things together. So that by Jesus Christ, we might have people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation that are gathered together from all generations to worship the Lord forever. I can't wait. But it's only Christ who's able to do that. And he makes that clear as, as he just did in the passage that we read in Matthew 3. That Jesus knows that his words are going to be things that can divide people who listen. So verse 54, Jesus answered them, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. In other words, if you're following God, then you ought to glorify me as well. He's starting to get very specific. 55, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do not know him. And I, but, but I do know him, and I keep his word. In other words, Jesus is saying, there's a divide between what you say with your lips and the way that your actions live. Consistently, Jesus is calling out the Pharisees for saying things with their mouths that they profess to believe, but then that their hearts are actually not in it, that their actions don't follow. And Jesus is saying, I know him, and I follow through with what I say and do. There's a warning in there for us as well as his church because too often times we can say one thing with our mouths and we can know that our hearts are not actually in it and that we're not going to follow through with our obedience. A thread in this whole interaction with Jesus is that if we are going to be in Christ, then we are going to not only hear his word, but that his word is going to produce fruit in our hearts and in our hands. That the Lord is actually going to connect those things in our lives. We know him and we keep his word. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and, I, and, and he was glad. In other words, this man that you're holding on to as, your, as, as children of Abraham, Abraham saw that this day was coming. I love those places in Scripture where Jesus is claiming and saying, remember when the prophets were writing, I'm, I'm here. The things that you've been looking forward to, it's now. It's why he started his whole ministry saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Jesus understands that the time is now and that he is actually coming and fulfilling the things that they have been studying all of these years. And that Abraham saw it and was glad. Remember, Abraham in Hebrews uh, 11, it talks about how Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That the work of Abraham was that he believed in God and that it was credited as righteousness. Jesus is saying here, Abraham saw this day coming, he believed it, and it led to him obe obeying the word of God. So the Jews said to him in verse 57, it's still back and forth. They're not giving up. They'll try anything. 
You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now they're ageist, right? Now, they're, now there's ageism here. You're not even 50. There's a reason for that. In Numbers 4, 3, we see that, that Levites, those who would serve in the temple, temple, actually would stop their service at age 50. That, that they would stop that service in the temple at age 50. And then beyond the age of 50 was a traditional sort of age for being um, a, more of a teacher, more of someone who's going to give wisdom. And so they're saying, they're saying, you're not yet 50 years old. In other words, you don't have yet the experience to teach us on this thing. And I don't know if there are any of you in this room who ever experienced something like that, where somebody is saying to you, Listen, when you're older, you'll understand. I try not to say that to my kids, but sometimes it just comes out. You know, there's, there's instruction from Paul to Timothy saying, let no one look down on you for your youthfulness. But rather, in speech, love, faith, and purity, show yourself as a believer to the, uh, show yourself as an example to those who believe. I would say the same thing for those of you in this church that are younger. Don't let anybody look down on you for your youthfulness. But the response is, show yourself obedient to God's word. We should look down on things that are not obedient to God's word. There's a reason that those who are older are able to, with wisdom, say, hey, I don't want you to make the mistakes that I have made. And those who are younger should listen to that. And we need those with wisdom and life experience to pass that on to the next generation. And then we want all generations to be obeying the word of God and showing example of those who believe. But the Jews are saying to Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old, and yet you've seen Abraham? It's the age-old joke of those. (laughs) My dad, my grandpa... They knew Moses. <laughs> it's a way of saying you're old. But the, but the Jews are saying you're not old yet. You're not old enough yet to be teaching in this way. And the continued reference to Abraham here is an, is an amazing fact for me that the, 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 the Pharisees want to hold on to this identity. Remember we were talking about the things that blind us. Perceived pedigree, position, the Pharisees are wanting to hold on to this, this, these, these titles of children of Abraham. This is what our background is. And you're not even old enough yet to teach us. But Jesus, again, is bringing reference to the fact that the seed of Abraham, the one who was coming in the promised Abrahamic covenant, is Jesus. And you can go back and read in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 how God is saying, I will make you the father of many nations And out of your seed will come blessing for all nations. Jesus is saying, I am that seed. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Here it is. He's been hinting about it for chapters now, for verses now. And all his I am statements sort of converge on this one moment in John 8, 58. He may say, I am the light of the world. He may say, I am the one who bears witness. In a little while, he's going to say, I am the good shepherd. He's going to say, I am the gate for the sheep. But all of those converge on this moment where Jesus just plainly and simply says, I am. I exist. I am that I am. It's the name that was given when Moses said to the Lord, Exodus 3, who shall I say that sent me? And, and God says, tell them I am that I am. I don't need any other qualifications than that. Or another way of translating that is, that is I will be what I will be. In other words, there's no time where God stops being. And Jesus here is saying, despite all of your objections, despite all of your blindness, despite all of your accusations, I exist. That name, I am that I am, Yahweh, as as we see in Exodus 3, 
That name was so revered among the people of Israel that oftentimes they wouldn't even say it. They wouldn't write it because it came out of the mouth of God himself as his name. So they would replace and say Adonai instead of, instead of Yahweh. The fact that Jesus here is, is saying I am and that he's claiming with that to be God was enough for them to be set off, triggered, divided. I just want to show you this little chart of what's coming. And so we have here in 858 and also Exodus 3, the statement of I am, I am that I am. And these are not the only I am statements. There's more that, that Jesus makes, but many of these statements converge here in this moment in John 858. We, we've seen that uh, he, he already has said a couple of these. He said, I am the light of the world in John 8 earlier. In John 6, he said, I am the bread of life. He's going to come to a place where he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He's going to say, I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I am the true vine. He's going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In Revelation, there is, I am the first and the last. What I love about this, this chart is that at the center of this is God's existence, that he's the source of all of life, and that all of these other things flow out of that. That because he's the source of all life, then things like I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the, I am the resurrection and the life, all of those things naturally flow out of the, the fact that he is in himself existence. John Piper puts it this way, In Jesus Christ, we who are born of God have the unspeakable privilege of knowing Yahweh as our Father. I am who I am, the God who exists, whose personality and power is owing solely to himself, the God who never changes, the God from whom all power and energy in the universe flows, the God to whom all creation should conform its life. That in this one statement, we have a holistic approach to who God is and who we ought to be in response. So we learn from this that Yahweh is greater than position, power, perceived pedigree, possessions, pleasure. All of these things that will blind us. All of these things that will keep us from being obedient to God's word. Yahweh, I am that I am, is greater than all of these things. Now, I don't know when you see those particular words, what ones bump up to the forefront for you. I don't know what, which one of those jump out at you. But I know that as I was thinking through this this week, there are, are at least two or three of these that I wrestle with. That I think to myself, I'm consistently thinking that these things are greater than God. Or even if I'm not thinking that, my life is lived in such a way that it, it reveals that that's what I'm thinking. And I'm convicted by that. I want to understand that all of these things pale in comparison to Jesus. That all of these things pale in comparison to the great I am. It's the pearl of great price. I want to be a person who, who sells all of these things to be able to go and pursue Jesus. And so these things that blind me from that, I want to ask God for his help for those to be removed from my life. That I might not any longer be blinded by those things. There's a reason that next week in John chapter 9, God's going to heal, Jesus is going to heal a blind man. Because we just spent a whole chapter talking with blind people. And God's going God's to show us that he's able to remove the scales from our eyes. But I think we might ponder on how these things have position or have a place in our lives that God doesn't intend them to be. That we might instead ask the Lord to remove the blindness so that he might be held and lifted on high. Remember, Jesus is intentional about what he says when he says it. And this has the reaction that he knew would come. When he says, I am, in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. 
But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The reaction here was that the Pharisees wanted to stone Jesus for the atrocity of claiming that he was God. We've said it before, Jesus is either liar or lunatic or Lord. And it's all in chapter 8. They call him a liar in 8.13. They call him a lunatic in 8.43. And he says that he is Lord in 8.58. And the reaction is intense. It's also not an accident that the beginning of John 8 begins with the, the leaders coming and bringing a woman to Jesus that they want to stone. And that by the end of chapter 8, they're wanting to stone Jesus. Also not an accident. Jesus knows exactly when it is that he goes to the cross. Exactly when it is that he rises on the third day. He's so in command of that time that nobody else's agendas are going to get in the way of it. So here they pick up stones and throw at him. And it's interesting, but Jesus hid himself. How many of you have ever thought about Jesus as somebody who hides? Not me. That's even more rare than somebody who throws over tables. But I think that there's a gem here for us as well, which is that there are times that we intentionally lose the battle to win the war. Remember, the Pharisees are trying to win at any cost. And here Jesus understands that there's a time for him to hide because it's not yet the time for him to go to the cross. The speed's going to pick up over the next few chapters here to where we're going to see him be moving towards the cross more intentionally from this point on. But Jesus was willing in this moment to withdraw, to hide, to lose for the sake of his victory. Of course, the ultimate example of that is on the cross. There's a great book called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. It's by a couple of guys that, that we know out in California. I think they came to redemption at one point. It's talking about, are we going to be a people who are going to be motivated by power, pleasure, position, possessions, pedigree? Or are we going to be a people who are motivated by sacrifice, losing our life, humility, dying to self, the way of the dragon or the way of the land? And that distinction in this passage is so clear from Jesus that we have to be a people that are obedient to his word, that are conformed to his image, which means that we're going to die to self, which means that we're going to lose our life. You remember he says this, whoever seeks to find his life shall lose it. And whoever seeks to lose his life for my sake shall find it. It's that strange paradox of life in Christ that he models as he goes to the cross and that he invites us into as his people. In a couple of chapters from now, Jesus is going to say in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. At the time, the disciples didn't know what he was talking about. But we know now that he is the Savior of the world, the one who gave up his life, went to the cross for our sake, and rose again on the third day, that all might have life in him. Those who believe would have life in him. May we, like Abraham, believe, and may it be credited to us as righteousness. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so thankful that you have modeled this for us, that you have made a way of salvation, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, that you are, that you are the great I am. And God, we want to be a people who believe like Abraham did. We want to be a people who hear your word and who do your word. So I pray, Lord, that you would allow for us to respond to you in faith and obedience and worship. 
God, I pray if there's, if there's anybody in this room who has not yet given their lives to you, who has not yet said, I believe, as Abraham did, I pray that today would be the day that we might put our faith in you and respond in obedience and worship. God, I pray even now as we take communion that you would help us to be crucified with you, that we would die to ourselves, that you would remove from us our spiritual blindness, that we wouldn't seek after all of the things of the world, Lord, but that we would seek after you, that you would be the greatest thing to us. So, Lord, as we take this communion, as we take the bread and the cup, I pray that you would use this reminder for us that you came and you gave your life, you rose again, you took your life back up. And that, Lord, we have the ability to live in your power and authority as a result. Would you be glorified in us, your church? In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we'll now take communion together. There are single self-serve communion kits in the back if you did not receive one. And we'd love for you to take communion during this worship and response time. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread with his disciples and he broke it. He gave it to them. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. He took the cup And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant given for you. Take and drink. May we do likewise as we wait for our glorious Savior to return. Amen. claimed its victory the king of love had given up his life the darkest day in history there on a cross they made for sinners for every curse his blood atoned Final breath and it was finished But not the end we couldn't know Before the earth began to shake And the veil was torn What sacrifice was made As the heavens rolled
benediction from Numbers 6, 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. Jesus.